Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. By every objective measure, unless you live in the south side of Chicago, the world is a safer place today than it's been for a long time. As people like Steven Pinker have repeatedly pointed out, almost every form of violence is less today than it was 50 or 100 years ago. So why is everyone so afraid, especially parents? Sure, we're afraid that our kids won't have opportunities greater than ours, and we're afraid about being ready to pay for their education, and we're afraid that they will fall in with the wrong crowd. But we're also afraid of them going out to play, of riding a bike, of them being alone, or just being on a playground that doesn't have the proverbial good housekeeping seal of approval. We want our kids to succeed and ultimately to feel at home in the world. But since when did that mean that we could never, ever let them out of our sight. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Kim Brooks. Kim is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and a recipient of the Michener Copernicus Fellowship. Her essays and stories have appeared in New York Magazine, Salon, and numerous other publications. It is my pleasure to welcome Kim Brooks here to talk about her book, Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, this story all starts with an incident that happened to you personally back in March of 2011. Tell us that. Sure. Um, well, I was home from Chicago visiting uh, my parents with my two children in Virginia. It was my last day uh, before flying back, and I needed to buy one item from the store um, on my right before going to the airport. So... I was with my son, who was about four and a half at the time, and he asked if he could wait in the car for a couple minutes while I ran in to get this one item. I agreed to that. It was a cool day. It was a safe suburban area. Um, and I let him wait there for a few minutes, came back. He was fine, happily playing on an iPad. <laughs> Only when I got home to Chicago did I learn that someone, a bystander who I would never would never meet, had seen me do this, had recorded it on their phone, called the police, and um, that the police now were interested in uh, pressing charges or charging me uh, for this, for allowing my son to wait in the car. And talk about how, your initial reaction to it when you first heard about it. There had to be a sense that, that this is a joke, that this can't be, that there must be some mistake. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely part of how I felt. I, I think there was also just a sense of confusion and, and fear. You know, um, I, one of the things I write about in, in my book, Small Animals, is, you know, about how, um, how much anxiety goes along with just being a parent, just everyday parenting life now, and that we're constantly being presented with so many choices, so many products, so many different competing philosophies, it can be quite overwhelming. And I was not immune from that. From that. So at first I thought, oh my God, like, wait, did I do something terrible? Why is this happening? You know, and when you're, to have your, your mother and your parenting sort of questioned in, in such a way or challenged in such a way, I definitely felt a lot of competing emotions, fear, shame, confusion, and then also, as you said, disbelief. Mm -hmm. Did you begin to think that you did do something wrong? Did you have sort of inner thoughts about what did I do and is it, was, was it wrong? I definitely asked myself that question quite a bit. Um, you know, what, the, the problem was that 
I couldn't understand what it was. You know, I, I understood that people, many people thought I had done something wrong. But, you know, one of the things that was in the back of my head that day was that, you know, I grew up in this, this area um, and I kept thinking, you know, about all the times my parents had let me wait in the car for a couple minutes or when they ran an errand when I was a kid growing up in the 80s. And also about other things that I had done as a kid, riding my bike to the pool on my own, um, playing outside on my own, walking to friends' houses, things like that. And, and you know, things that I didn't, many people, including myself, maybe didn't really let our kids do these days. And so I, you know, I thought, well, why are those things that were so common a generation ago, why have those now become, become criminal, become taboo? And so, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the beginning of this, this process of writing about, about parenthood. And as you thought about yourself, did you consider yourself to be a fearful parent? Were you, were you one of those parents or are you one of those parents that, that is afraid of everything that the kid does? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely, definitely I struggled, especially in the early years of being a parent with, with anxiety and fear. You know, I would not at all have thought of myself as a fearless parent. Um, you know, and, and I, don't, I still don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's natural to feel fear when it comes to our kids because we love them so much, you know, and we want, you know, I think it's natural to want to protect them, to be afraid that they're, you know, in the world. Um, but, but what I sort of learned was that it's not just that we are feeling afraid all the time about our kids. It's the way in which we're institutionalizing those fears and sort of enforcing those fears. And that sort of was the, what I've learned to change somewhat. There's also this kind of cognitive dissonance that goes on between what we rationally know to be the case, what we intellectually know to be the case in terms of what the real level of danger might be or might not be, and how we emotionally feel about it. Yes. I mean, I think that that's very true. That's very well said. It's, you know, when, when we fear, we often don't fear rationally. And, you know, so one, one statistic I use in the book is I say, you know, that I learned in my research that the most dangerous thing that I did that day in terms of my son's safety was put him in the car and drive anywhere with him. <laughs> right. For, you know, I learned that 487 children on average every year die or are injured in moving vehicle car accidents. Um, so, you know, that's just, just driving places is one of the riskiest things that we do, but we don't feel afraid, most of us, when we get in the car to drive to the store. Um, whereas things that we, we are scared of, stranger danger, child abduction, hot car deaths, um, things like that, plane crashes, you know, we know rationally that these things are very, very, very statistically unlikely. And, and you wonder the degree to which there's a whole industry built up almost that gins up that fear in order to, to sell us solutions or to sell us things that, that in some ways help ameliorate that fear. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think fear sells. Um, you know, people who feel secure and okay and safe and connected to, to their community, to a larger community, aren't as, aren't as likely to buy stuff. Um, I was actually just saying to a friend last night um, after my book event, like, 
you know, th- this happened at a Target, and I was saying how before this happened, like when I was a, a new mother with my with my babies, like I loved Target so much because I would <laughs> I would like walk through it and just seeing all the the products they have, you know, to help you better carry your kid or feed your kid or like the new, latest toys or the educational products. And I would just feel like, okay, surely there's, there are things here that are going to help me do a better job or be a better mom or solve this problem or that problem. You know, so I think there is definitely um, a way in which our consumer culture, that kind of hyper consumerism of our culture um, interacts with fear and that the two sort of mutually reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. The other part of this story, of course, is the woman, the anonymous woman that called the police, that what somebody else thought of this. Talk a little about that. Yeah, well, you know, we've, what I, we've got into this strange place, I think. Well, the, the moment we're living in is strange for many reasons, <laughs> right. but one of, one of the things that's strange um, is that we've arrived at this moment where when a lot of people see a child who's not being or observed or supervised by an adult, they immediately assume that it's an emergency, right? And, and that's how this woman treated it. It's an emergency. What do you do in an emergency? You call the police. The problem is that this is a very new kind of mindset. You know, for most of history, children have been able to move through public spaces and move through the world without direct adult supervision and without people assuming that they are somehow immediately imperiled. Um, you know, so I, I think that when people say like, you know, what should, what should she have done instead? Or what should people do instead? I say, well, like the first step before you can change how people respond to these situations is, is challenging that view that a child on, on his or her own is necessarily in, in, um, immediate danger. And then the second thing I think a lot about is that, you know, (laughs) This is a someone who saw me come back to the car, who saw me get in, and I didn't even know that she was there um, until I found out what had happened later. And I think that it's really sad that you know we live in this moment where it's easier for a lot of people to call the police on someone anonymously to record something on their phone and post it on social media than it is to actually just talk to someone to to have a conversation you know if you're not sure what you're seeing is everything okay or to even talk to the child you know to ask the child if they're okay but um that talking to each other doesn't seem to be something that we're very good at doing anymore right the other thing that this addresses and you spend time talking about this in small animals is the judgmental attitudes towards parenting today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, that's something that, that I do think a lot about. Um, I, I guess, you know, in so many ways, I think for a lot of people, parenting and parenthood has kind of become our religion right now. You know, it's something that, that we believe in and we we exalt mothers, we idealize mothers, and then when they don't live up to these impossible expectations of martyrdom and perfection, then we demonize them. Um, and so, you know, if, if we're looking at motherhood and parenthood in that way, not as a relationship, but as, um, as this sort of like idealized, um, almost religious 
experience, then it, then it doesn't surprise me that people become very judgmental when they don't think other mothers or other parents are, are kind of living up to those ideals. One thing you wonder, and, and you are from Chicago, so you might have a better sense of this, is the degree to which, th- is this just kind of an urban, educated phenomenon, or is this something that you think happen, could happen anywhere? Well, I think it's much more of a suburban um, phenomenon mm. than, than an urban phenomenon. I mean, all of the cases that I've heard about and writ- that I write about in the book happened in suburban areas. Um, I think that in cities, you know, there's, people are more connected. There's more of a sense that public spaces do exist where people can be. Um, you know, I think in the suburbs, there's more fear, there's more boredom, there's, um, there's, there's less public space. And so, yeah, I don't think it's an urban, an urban issue at all. I think it's, a issue, it's an American issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that the same thing would happen somewhere in Nebraska or somewhere in Iowa? I mean, you know, of course it's hard to say, but, you know, I, I do. I think, that, I think that this happens a lot in suburbs in planned developments, you know, um, in places where, um, you know, and of course it, it varies. I'm sure that there are small towns, for example, where kids still have more freedom. Um, you know, but, but remember this didn't happen in Chicago where I live. This actually happened where I grew up in rural suburban Virginia. So, you know, if it happens in Virginia or, in the case of um, Deborah Harrell, one mother I interviewed in Augusta, uh, South Carolina, I don't know why it wouldn't happen in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the fear that people have, the fear that parents have today, has any real justification behind it? I mean, in the people that you talk to and you're reporting on this book, were, were, were people able to point to situations, point to incidents that happened that drove their fear? Or was this this kind of free-floating anxiety that we're talking about? Yeah, I think that, I mean, look, I, I think that people don't feel safe right now, mm-hmm. you know, um, for good reason. Um, we don't, adults don't feel safe for themselves. We don't feel safe for our children. Um, part of that, I think, is, you know, larger social problems, environmental problems, um, political situ- situation in this country. Um, there's a feeling of, of insecurity that we're not connected to each other and we're not protected. The problem is all those things that I mentioned, you know, what do, what do you as an individual person or parent really do about those things? You know, rising class inequality, the soaring cost of education, um, you know, the prospect of, you know, global warming or environmental disaster, those things that are sort of in the in the atmosphere. Sometimes we can feel like there's not much we can do. I think what happens then is this sort of free floating anxiety we project it onto specific issues and onto our children. And so, you know, I say, I might say to myself, well, I can't, I can't do much about um, the fact that 
uh, we might not have an inhabitable planet in 50 years or, you know, that I might not be able to afford at the higher education for my kids. But, but I saw some, you know, I saw some segment on the news about um, a kid who was kidnapped. So I can make sure I never let my kid walk down the street or, you know, I can, I can cut up their food into tiny little pieces to make sure they don't choke on something. So, you know, I think I, I it's not that I, I think there's, anything unnatural or I think it's very understandable that parents feel afraid. I often feel afraid. I mean, what's, I, what's problematic to me is what we do with those feelings. Right. I mean, I guess the comparison is, and, and, and I'm older than you are. I grew up in, in, in 50s and 60s. And there was a lot of fear then, too. I mean, there was fear of nuclear war, duck and cover drills in school and air raid drills and and all those things that we were afraid of then that, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, that the world could be annihilated. And yet that fear and that anxiety at that point didn't manifest itself in quite the same way Mm -hmm. that all of our fear and anxiety today is playing out. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's two things. And I know what you're talking about, too. I mean, I remember there's a sociologist, Joel Best, mm-hmm. who I, I interviewed for the book. And he writes about, for example, how in the, the 80s, um, in a national survey, people, where people had to rank things that they worried about for their, for their families, um, the threat of kidnapping, of child abduction, ranked higher than the threat of nuclear war mm. or the AIDS epidemic, you know, which is kind of fascinating to me. So it's interesting, like, what changed between then and between the period you're talking about? You know, part of it, I think, might be um, technology and the 24-hour news cycle right. and, you know, the fact that it seems like media is often like searching for these very sensational stories that of you know bad things happening to children in sort of shocking and unusual ways. We're sort of saturated with those stories in a way that people probably weren't a few generations ago. Um, I think part of it is also sort of our our ambivalence as a culture about mothers working, and mm. you know the the on mass entrance of women into the workforce um, in the you know in the seventies and eighties, um, we kind of pay lip service to the idea that mothers should be able to work work, but I think you know if you look at our complete lack of um, of supports of policies and structures to support working mothers, I think it's pretty clear that we're pretty ambivalent about it. So, you know, I think maybe a lot of these feelings come, come from that, that sense of sort of shaming women and who's watching the kids, where's mom. Did you find any differences in, in the women you talked to and the families you talked to with respect to age or generation? I mean, do millennials approach this differently? Is it better or worse for them? What did you find in that regard? Well, uh, I, did, I do think that you know, younger people, that millennials, that there might be now a sort of slow brewing backlash to this sort of helicopter parenting, you know, hypervigilant or paranoid parenting um, trend, you know, and I see that in things like um, the no schooling movement or free range parenting or um, just simple things like 
um, you know, I hear, I've started to hear more things like p- parents saying things like, well, I'm not sending my kid to camp all summer. Like, I'm going to let them play in the neighborhood with a couple other kids. Um, so I, I, I'm hopeful that the, the pendulum is sort of maybe swinging back in, in this direction. I mean, the, the reason may be that, you know, you can put a GPS chip on the kid now or a bracelet and know where they are at all times. Right. Right. This is true, you know, and this is something I've done myself. Like, right, there's this app where, you know, my son, if he's going to go someplace on his on his own, he has a phone and I can see exactly where he is. Right. And I don't know if I really have a problem with that. You know, I mean, sometimes people, I think want to paint, um, you know, people like me or like Lenore Skenazy, who, you know, founded the Free Range Kids Movement as these like, you know, crazy people who don't believe that anything bad can happen and, you know, you shouldn't take precautions. And and that's just not really true. I mean, I think like bike helmets are great. Like, of course, kids should wear bike helmets. Of course, everyone should wear their seatbelt. Um, you know, if there's a way to track your kid with a phone and just to make sure you know where they are, you know, but still giving them freedom to explore, of course we should do those things because those things don't have a cost. And this is, this is, the, this is what I talk about a lot in the book, that, you know, we can always make things safer for kids or for anyone, but there's a cost. And what I see is the problem is we're, we're often not looking at what that cost is to our children, to parents, to mothers, to society. Kim Brooks, her book is Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Kim, I thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Lovely.